I'm Josh Hammer, and this is America on Trial. It's another crazy news cycle out there, so without further ado, let's hop right into Around the Horn. Donald Trump was back in federal court yesterday. This time he was in the Florida courtroom of Judge Aileen Cannon. This in the lesser disgust of the two special counsel Jack Smith initiated federal prosecutions against former President Trump. This one pertaining to his alleged retention of classified documents in illicit fashion at his palatial Mar-a-Lago estate there in Palm Beach, Florida. This was a closed door hearing yesterday. You're having a flurry of pre-trial hearings in this Florida case as it pertains to the use or perhaps misuse of classified documents at open trial. This is a very thorny and divisive topic that goes back many decades, how to actually invoke, how to present, how to use, how to cross-examine, and so forth, classified documents when it comes to trial. The very nature of classified documents makes it something that you don't necessarily want to get out, out into the open, into the record when it comes to a trial. But on the other hand, you have the Sixth Amendment with the constitutional requirements to face the witnesses against you in a criminal proceedings. You have to balance a lot of these concerns, balance out constitutional due process, you have a somewhat obscure statute called the Classified Information Procedures Act. So the hearings yesterday in Judge Cannon's courtroom pertain to this. Donald Trump did show up to these hearings in person, and Judge Cannon is, is, is weighing at this time Donald Trump's attorney's motion to postpone some of these deadlines pertaining to the Classified Information Procedures Act. We will see more about that. As of now, that Florida trial is still set to start on May 20th. So that's that's still a ways away from now. That, that's still three months away from now. That date definitely could get pushed back further. It would not surprise me in the slightest if these Classified Information Procedure Act cases continue to push that start date back further, but we will see. For now, it was a bit of a big to-do here in Florida, Donald Trump being back in federal courtroom just yesterday. Some other news out of New York City. So when it comes to the Tish James-initiated civil fraud case against the Trump Organization, we are still waiting on a verdict to come in probably sooner rather than later at this point. We've, I know we've been saying on that on the show pretty much every day. It's not really a question as to whether they will find Trump liable for alleged fraud in what is sure to be a deeply chilling and, and harrowing opinion, a deeply chilling and harrowing damages verdict that will surely disincentivize the formation of all sorts of entrepreneurship and venture capital throughout the empire state. We'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more at the time that the actual ruling from, from Justice Arthur Angoron is released, probably within the next week, week and a half or so. So the judge there is going to finalize the timetable as well. There's this weird interplay when it comes to Alan Weisselberg, when it comes to the civil fraud trial there in New York City and also the prosecution with uh, with New York Attorney General Alvin Bragg, this on the falsified business dealings case, the most bogus and the first of all of the for prosecutions against Donald Trump that were unveiled last year. So specifically, the, the allegation here is that Alan Weisselberg, the longtime Trump CFO, the longtime Trump Organization CFO, the allegation from Alvin Bragg is that he perjured himself on the stand during the course of the civil fraud case, during the course of hearings pertaining to the Justice and Goron presided Tish James civil fraud trial. And what you're seeing here is Alvin Bragg deciding whether he's going to take a plea deal 
from Alan Weisselberg. Who knows what that plea deal will look like? What will the ramifications be like for the hush money payments case, the case with Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen? It's very, it, it's very hard to disentangle these two cases, the fraud trial overseen by Justice and Goron, and then this prosecution that's being brought by, by Alvin Bragg. And, and the case that you have Alan Weisselberg here, who is, is currently in talks for a possible plea deal with Alvin Bragg, but it comes to the civil fraud case, it makes it even harder to disentangle these two cases. In, in, in any event there, we're hoping for more clarity on the timeline from both of those cases, in, including but not limited to this possible plea deal this week or next week as well. All signs do currently point towards that that Alvin Bragg so-called hush money payments case with Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels. All signs are pointing towards that being the first out of the gate, and it is the most likely of all four of the criminal prosecutions to actually cross the finish line at this point. Despite the polling, by the way, despite the polling that says that if Donald Trump is convicted, then automatically XYZ percentage of people will not vote for him. I, I am just not sure that applies when it comes to this Alvin Bragg case in New York City. I mean, maybe we're just too online, frankly, but that, that case is just so frivolous. That case is just such a joke, for lack of a better term, that I absolutely do think that Trump will be able to turn that into a potentially positive thing for his campaign development. He can talk about how this fits into the whole witch hunt and all that. I'm talking about here, even if a guilty verdict were to come down in that Alvin Bragg case. Again, this is the case that you couldn't even get liberal commentators to go on cable news to defend. It really is just that much of a joke. It really is just that frivolous. Yesterday, also, you had Judge Scott McAfee down in Georgia, Fulton County, Georgia Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee, who said in a hearing just yesterday in Georgia, he confirmed that this forthcoming evidentiary hearing there in the racketeering case brought by Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, that there is going to be this evidentiary hearing this Thursday. So we got some more confirmation yesterday about this forthcoming evidentiary hearing on Thursday. That's It's a big deal. It is going to be a very big deal. It's going to be Thursday morning. We're going to be all over here on America on Trial. This is the evidentiary hearing that's brought by Trump co-defendant Michael Roman, who has filed a motion to dismiss the in- indictment and disqualify the DA there, Fonnie Willis, from the case. The listeners of the show who are very informed as to what is going on there in Georgia, you're, you're well familiar by now with not just the allegations, but indeed the confirmations that Fonnie Willis has been romantically involved with the special prosecutor that she has tapped to lead this case, Nathan Wade. It's, it's a Hollywood-esque poop show down there in Georgia. You really can't make this stuff up. And then to add insult to injury, you have both a Georgia State Senate Special Committee as well as the U.S. House Judiciary Committee under Congressman Jim Jordan, both of which now have subpoena power to investigate Fonnie Willis over alleged misuse of public taxpayer funds as well there. This is all the sort of stuff that is hopefully going to come up on this evidentiary hearing on Thursday where we're going to consider whether to to disqualify Fonnie Willis from this case, which is going to be a huge, huge deal there. This is a quote from Judge Scott McAfee there in Georgia from yesterday, from Monday, February 12th. He was considering some of these motions, and when he ruled to affirm that this evidentiary hearing on Thursday will indeed take place, as we always expected that it would, he wrote, quote, In studying the law that's been filed up to this point, I think it's clear that disqualification can occur if evidence is produced demonstrating an actual conflict or the appearance of one. And the filings submitted on this issue so far have presented a conflict in the evidence that can't be resolved as a matter of law. 
So he's saying that there is facial evidence, that, that there is, at least at a face value, there is preliminary evidence to suggest that there is some sort of conflict of interest here, some sort of conflict as it pertains to Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade. He's not really elaborating a ton there, although he does elaborate a little further on. He writes, quote, again, this is Judge Scott McAfee writing on Monday. He writes, quote, specifically looking at defendant Michael Roman's motion, it alleges a personal relationship that resulted in a financial benefit to the district attorney. And that is no longer a matter of complete speculation. The state has admitted a relationship existed. And so what remains to be proven is the existence and extent of any financial benefit. So he's teasing what is going to be heard at this evidentiary hearing on Thursday. They're looking not just into the timeline for the Fonnie Wills, Nathan Wade romantic relationship, but they're going to be looking into the timeline for any financial benefit as well. This gets into the whole issue of misallocation and misuse of taxpayer resources. What we said earlier as well, that the Georgia State Senate Special Committee and also now the U.S. House Judiciary Committee are both also investigating. So that's going to be an explosive day down in Georgia on Thursday, February 15th. We will cover it certainly in in great detail on this show. What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. So with that, let's go to our deep dive. So in the D.C. Circuit case, Donald Trump was back at court yesterday. I mean, he was physically in court in Florida. He was physically there in court for the pretrial hearings, as we discussed in Judge Aileen Cannon's Florida courtroom as pertains to the Classified Information Procedures Act. But his lawyers in Washington, D.C., as entirely expected and anticipated, petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court for an emergency stay in the D.C. Circuit interlocutory appeal when it comes to the question of presidential immunity in the Jack Smith federal probe. So that's a lot of legalese here, to, to put it mildly. We'll try to break it down for you. So the way it works, the way it works in trial is that there are some questions, of course, that you have to kick up to a federal appeals judge or potentially even higher than that because in order to resolve that question, you have to first answer that question before you can decide whether to even stand trial in the first place, basically. There are some things that can only be resolved as a matter of law before you decide whether the trial in its current form can even proceed. 
this is what was going on there in the Donald Trump prosecution in Washington, D.C., as pertains to the question of presidential immunity. So Donald Trump first complained that he was being illegally prosecuted when it comes to the Jack Smith racketeering election overturning, blah, 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 all that stuff. He first complained about that to Judge Tanya Chuckin there in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. She, she denied that claim of immunity which required him to then seek it at a higher court. Because if Donald Trump is right, if Donald Trump is right, that he is fully immune as a basic matter of constitutional law, as a basic matter of what it means to wield the, quote, executive power, of which Article 2, Clause 1, Section 1 of the Constitution speaks, if he is correct that if you are a sitting president that you simply cannot be prosecuted, period, full stop, end of story, for the actions that you took in your time in office, then he cannot be prosecuted, period. That's it. I don't know how else to say it. So you have to get a ruling on that before you can decide whether this actual trial in Judge Tanya Chutkin's courtroom can proceed. So that's why you had this oral argument in front of the three-judge D.C. Circuit panel. About a month ago now, they issued their ruling from the three-judge panel. One week ago, they said no in a unanimous per curiam unsigned opinion. They said no that he does not have immunity. So now they've gone off to the Supreme Court, the Trump lawyers there, the formidable John Sauer leading the charge, the former Missouri Solicitor General, a terrific attorney there in this particular case. And they have formally said in a 39-page filing at the Supreme Court on on Monday, February 12th, they said that they need an emergency stay, which would effectively pause the three-judge panel's finding of no immunity while the Trump legal team then decides what to do more fully. And their two main options would be to either then petition the U.S. Supreme Court on a writ of certiorari, which would mean that they would seek the Supreme Court's intervention to rule on the substantive constitutional merits. In other words, this would be a full briefing where the attorneys have to file briefs. They would they, they would probably have an expedited oral argument. It would be the, the whole nine yards, as, as they say. Or they could go try the en banc route of the D.C. Circuit and try to hear a a, a full presidential immunity hearing before the full 11-judge panel of the entire U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. They're not going to win the D.C. Circuit. It is a 7-4 is a to four Democrat-nominated judicial majority on the D.C. Circuit, and even one of the four Republican judicial nominees there on the D.C. Circuit, Judge Karen Henderson, was actually one of the judges on the three-judge panel who signed off on that per curiam opinion last week, finding no presidential immunity in the case at hand. So it's not a question as to whether Trump is going to win at the D.C. Circuit if they seek en banc review. Rather, the reason that I continue to think that they will do so is twofold. One is that I think that it would be beneficial for for numerous reasons, to try to suss out a, formid- a formidable pro-presidential power, pro-Article 2, pro-presidential immunity dissent from one of the conservative judges there, likely one of the Trump-nominated judges there on the D.C. Circuit, that would likely take the form of Judge Katsis or Judge Rao. And on the other hand, it would make sense when you analogize what's actually happening here in the D.C. Circuit ruling you know, we, we just had the Super Bowl the other night. And admittedly, this really didn't apply in the Super Bowl. It was a it was a heck of a football game. But in a football game where you have one team that is up by, eh, say, three, four, five points, less than a touchdown midway through the fourth quarter, you're going to just try to pound the ball up the middle, take up 35, 40 seconds off the play clock, just try to drain as much time as possible. 
make the other team try to burn some timeouts and really just get into clock management mode. Clock management mode is really what the Trump legal team there in D.C. is, is doing when it comes to this case. This case is, is barred on the crown jewel of the lawfare prosecution cases against Donald Trump. This is the case, Jack Smith's federal probe in D.C., this is the case where the Biden regime is really, really, really putting a lot of its eggs in the basket right now. And if you were the Trump team, if you can slow it down as much as possible, and to me, I think that means first seeking en banc review before the D.C. Circuit, before then trying to kick it up to the Supreme Court, if need be, to get a ruling on the substantive constitutional law, I think that is the way to slow this thing down as much as possible and to maximize your chances of not getting a verdict before November of 2024. Now, the Supreme Court could totally throw a wrench in this, by the way. They don't have to listen to the Trump lawyers. I predict the Trump lawyers are hoping for just a simple stay, which will then allow them to pursue on bonk review in the D.C. Circuit, as we just discussed. But the Supreme Court justices don't have to do that. They can actually just treat Trump's request for a simple stay of the three-judge panel's denial of immunity. They can treat that as not merely a stay, but as actually a full-throated petition for review. And then they could ask that the lawyers turn this into a formal petition for a writ of certiorari and then expedite this this hearing, expedite this formal briefing and oral argument. And again, the whole nine yards when it comes to having the actual nine justices then weigh in on the question as to whether Article 2 of the Constitution would preclude Jack Smith's prosecution of actions that Donald Trump took while he was the commander in chief, while he was wielding the executive power of the United States. Just so just some highlights from the 39-page filing that the Trump lawyers filed at the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday, they wrote, quote, without immunity from criminal prosecution, the presidency as we know it will cease to exist. Pretty powerful language there. Basically, over and over again throughout this 39-page filing, they make the argument that if allowed to stand, this prosecution from Jack Smith will, quote, unleash destructive cycles of recrimination, and then that the threat of future prosecutions, quote, will hang like a millstone around every future president's neck, distorting presidential decision-making, undermining the president's independence, and clouding the president's ability to deal fearlessly and impartially with the duties of his office. What they are basically saying is that if you deny presidential immunity here and you allow for prosecution of actions that someone takes while he or she is the actual sitting commander-in-chief wielding the executive power of the United States, then you are opening up Pandora's box. Then you, who knows where this ends? I mean, can you then prosecute Barack Obama after he is president of the United States for the drone assassination via Hellfire missile of U.S. citizen Anwar al-Walaki, the al-Qaeda-adjacent terrorist who was operating in Yemen in the Arabian Peninsula back in 2011 or so? There's all sorts of questions like that, and the commentariat has tried to dismiss this argument as frivolous, as Federalist Society, Fed Sock, legal, argle, bargle, or, or whatever. I, I have always said that this is a much more serious theory, a much more serious constitutional argument than most of the so-called legal eagles on television or your other local podcasts will tell you. Again, it is long-standing Department of Justice policy going back to a 1973 U.S. Department of Justice memo from the Nixon administration 
that the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would unconstitutionally undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions. That is longstanding DOJ policy. Going back to Nixon, reaffirmed in an October 16, 2000 memo under the Clinton administration in the waning days of the Clinton administration there. This is bipartisan stuff. It is not constitutionally controversial. The only question whatsoever as to whether the that memo, as to whether the legal theory of that memo does a, applies not merely to current presidents, but to those who were presidents. I think it probably does for the very simple reason that you're talking about the actions that were taken when they were president. I don't think it matters so much whether you are literally physically sitting in the White House throne, whether you are physically sitting in the Situation Room at the desk there in the Oval Office. What matters is that you are prosecuting for decisions that were taken while you were the Commander-in-Chief of the United States. And certainly from a forward-looking, from what we might refer to in law school as an ex-ante, as an incentives-based perspective there, do you really want to incentivize prosecutors moving forward for the day after there was a transition to power, so January 21st, January 22nd, every four years, you really want to incentivize prosecutors every 40 years there in late January to start trying to indict and prosecute former presidents for XYZ things that they may or may not have said while they were president? It's insane. It's insane on its face. I'm not convinced that this argument is going to fly if slash when it gets up to the United States Supreme Court. I feel pretty confident that Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito will buy it. Probably Brett Kavanaugh, honestly, because Kavanaugh, he's squishy, but he also is a strong Article II presidential powers kind of guy there. I'm not sure it's going to get more than that. I could see Gorsuch going wobbly. I could see Barrett going wobbly. Tough to say. Tough to say. On the other hand, though, the justices definitely are not going to want to rule definitively on this, very similar to the 14th Amendment, Section 3, question of ballot access, which we heard in the Trump versus Anderson case at the court last week. I think you're going to see a lot of folks in the Supreme Court justice circle who are going to want to just try to find a way to kick this thing down the road and not weigh in, lest the court be seen as trying to affect the outcome of the election. So just a lot of variables here, a lot of variables at play. But for now, for now, the Trump justices have formally sought a stay in the U.S. Supreme Court when it comes to the question of presidential immunity. We will see what their next move is, and we will certainly, certainly discuss it with you right here on America on Trial with Josh Hamm.